there are two ways to live. You can live in the promises of God, in the land of His promises, or you can live according to the fears and the discouragements and the frustrations of the world. Father, I pray this morning as we embark upon another of your promises and what it means to our lives, I pray that you would dig our hearts into the reality of how we can live, I pray. I pray, O oh God, that you would bring great clarity to what you have promised to us, but Lord, I pray that you would bring great motivation to us to serve you according to the promises you have made to us and to, to embrace the, a way of living, O oh God, that you have for us. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure if, if you've grown up thinking much about the promises of God or over the years have studied very much about what God has promised to us. I have um, spent a number of years, of course, studying the various promises of God, but never taken a, a series and put together the theology of God's promises. And I, I've, I found this deeper dive a rather fascinating journey that I wish I had actually taken earlier in ministry than now, but, but maybe I wasn't ready for it. And uh, I think we have some important things to, things to work through over these uh, final weeks of this year and into early part of, of next year. I'm not sure whether we've thought about much about whether, promise, whether we think the promises of God are, are more like transactions that God makes with us. I mean, growing up in, in, in our sort of environment here in, in, in the West, everything's sort of a transaction. You pay for this, you get that. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. We kind of work a lot in that realm. And I think it's possible for the promises of God to get trapped into that place as well. We think of God's promises as some sort of transaction to us that, that he makes and we give and take and, and all of that. And, and I'm, I'm finding out and discovering that the promises of God are actually a way to live. Not so much a transaction from God, but a, an entirely different way to live. A, a complete, complete re, uh, re, uh, overhaul of your worldview. And uh, it's, th it's there that I want to take. I, I had some time this week just sort of some, for some quiet, quiet time of, of uninterrupted staring at a quiet lake. And um, that's always good for the soul and good for theology as well. To just have your Bible, have the Lord, have a quiet, still lake, and just have some uninterrupted time. And I invested a lot of that in just thinking through the promises of God and what they really are all about. And I want to offer to you at the front end of our, our time together just some things that I jotted down. Um, and I'm going to stick close to virtually reading my notes at the front end here because I really don't want to, uh, to miss <clears throat> out on what I said or, or be misunderstood. And so I hope this is helpful to you and, and it leads us into where we want to go um, today because God has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. And that song we just sang is such an important one about depending upon God. He has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. What does that really mean? That's what we need to look at today. What I've encountered is this, that the promises of God teach us who God is and what God does. But, and I think we already know that, but the promises of God also teach us what to believe and how to behave. In other words, how to behave based on the promise of God determines whether or not we are in fact are eligible to benefit from his promise. I'm not going to be quick to put 
the word condition on, in front of the promises of God, but our behavior matters in terms of our realization of the benefits of God's promises. In fact, the promises of God invite us to be a certain kind of disciple. And that's what we've been tracking over the several years now. What, what is this certain kind of disciple? Our worldview should be based upon the promises of God and can be. This series, I hope, will be actually life transforming for us. Anytime we do a series in God's word, it should be life transforming, but I really, I'm really hoping that this will be a life transforming worldview event for you over these next months, that it will completely shape your worldview. So let me just say this, promises are meant to be experienced, not merely memorized. I, I suspect many of you who grew up in a background like mine had sort of like a little promise theology box, promise box. What's your promise for today? And you'd take it out. Totally ripped out of context, just a promise. Promises are not meant to merely be memorized. They're meant to experience God. They're to provide security and not some form of divine bribery or extortion. God, you said this and this must be the way it is. It's to require personal committedness. Not a real word, but we'll invent it today. Not to be a one-sided presumption, but based upon your investment, not your presumption. Promises are more what God is like rather than a wooden game plan on what he has to do. But because we... Um, because, we ne he, because he never surrenders his right to rule, ever. And in many ways, promises are the forum in which we get to actually experience God. And Christians often talk to each other about, the, how, do you, how do you experience God? We know about God, we read about God, we sing about God. How do you experience God? I would suggest to you that promises are the forum for where we actually experience God. But only as we do our part, only as we do our part in believing him. When a promise does not materialize exactly how we envisioned it, it is divine prerogative to interpret a promise into our lives exactly as God wills. We need to know that because it may not be the perfect time or place for that promise to come to pass. How often have we read in the scriptures phrases like in the course of time or when time was fully come? Divine healing gives us perhaps the earthiest laboratory to the way God enacts promises. Think about it. God has promised in his word to heal us of all our diseases. I think Pastor Kelvin touched on that last week. Doesn't he? That's what he promises. I would submit to you that he fulfills his promise regularly and always with the last disease. Always. Diseases that are, are terminal uh, are regularly not healed this side of heaven. In fact, it's, it's a rarity when the kingdom yet to come breaks into our world and we experience a healing. Our bodies were made to heal us. Sometimes they don't. And that final disease is always healed for the believer. Always. But not the way often that we think of it. So does God fail on his promise? Never. A fulfilled promise to you and to God may be an entirely different script. His sovereignty gives him last word. We pray his promises and he answers us. But not always how we want him to. Promises are not purposed to grant humans ruling class over the cosmos. 
Rather, they enter us into the world of a promise-making and promise-keeping God. There's a difference. He's still in charge. He has the right to rule over the cosmos at the counsel of his own perfect will. Promises grant us the assurance that we get to experience his perfect will for us. That's why we pray, not my will, O God, but yours be done. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? And God says back to us, give me your trust, and in Christ, all my precious promises are for you. So, I think we're being invited when we study promises. I think we're being invited by God into the land of promise, to get to live in the land of promise. In the same way that Israel was wandering around in the wilderness and about to move into the promised land, we also, as God's people, are invited by God to live in the land of his promises. That revolutionizes how you live and think. That's the worldview we are to have. Our worldview is to live in the land of promise, the promises of God. But I also want to mention that not only are promises meant to be experienced and to teach us about who God is and what he does, but but also promises are about offering the believer a completely different way to live. A completely different way to live than the people around you who push and jostle and for every inch of life. We get to live in an entirely countercultural reality. The people around us who are living under the tyranny of the God of this world are fear-driven, selfish, greedy, dishonest, and power-addicted. They um, live and speak the native instincts and language of their father. John 8, talks about this. The God of this world, the father of lies, the one who attempted to, to tempt Jesus to to uh, be addicted to the power and authority of all the nations of this world. That, that God, the little g God. The people of this world are tyrannized by that God. And everything around you, those who are over you in the world, who don't know the Lord, those who are imposing their will and their ways on you, the everyday people of this world, the ways of this world, are met head on by the promises of God. The the thinking of this world and the promises of God are in a collision course every time. And we need to live on high alert as God's people and view every secular decision around us through the lens of the way the people of this world think and act and behave as fear-driven, selfish, dishonest, addicted to power, opportunistic. That's not the land of promise that we get to live in. That's the land that they live in. And, and the promises of God on our, and land on our life every day as glorious counter-agents to that secular way of living. And basically what the promises of God are to us is you will face this, but the Lord of glory offers you his precious promises. That's what we get to live. So one of the promises, of course, has to do with our securities especially in the face of abandonment, losing something important in life, unexpected changes in your life, in your situation, maybe a new boss, a change in leadership, a loss of someone very important to you who you depended upon. God has a promise to us with respect to our securities in those those moments. And for today, what we're going to study is that Israel was about to experience a leadership change. They had been led by Moses for the past 40 years. 
and he's announcing his retirement. At 120, he says it's time to hang it up. Can you imagine? Would you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31? Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 to 8. Moses announces his retirement. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give to them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. This is the word of God for us this morning. So, Moses announces his retirement, and he's going to pass it, hand it off to a young whippersnapper at, by the, at the age of 80 by the name of Joshua. We don't usually see successions at that age, 120 to 80 years of age. And all the millennials, million, a million perhaps of them, were like, we were thinking maybe a little bit of a younger transition, but okay. So here you have this transition. Now Moses has, has led them for 40 years. Many hard battles have been won by Moses with the, the people. He has led them out of Egypt. He has led them into, through crises of food and, and drink and bandits and dissension and all kinds of ways Moses has demonstrated great leadership and the people have followed him. And he literally says to them, in, in what the text says, I'm no longer able to lead you, but literally that means I can't fight anymore. I have no fight left in me. It's the end. And of course, we know that God had, has already said to him, you're not going into the promised land. They're poised to go in there. He knows this. He's, he's in, in tune, in conversation with God. He knows where it's at and he knows where he's at. But now these people are going to be handed over a new leader and asked to take a land that their parents were afraid to take. And they're wondering to themselves about Joshua, you know. The last we heard about Joshua 40 years ago, like he was a serious warrior kind of leader. Like we can take this land, people. We can go in and we can do it. Are we sure we want, to, like, is he going to be caring? Is he going to be loving? Is he going to, you know, empathize with us? What kind of a leader is he going to be? Well, there's a security question here. We, we face this in our own lives. This is nothing new to us. In fact, this is quite common for us right now. So what kind of a leader will he be? So we want to look at this in, from the context of why did God first make this promise to them? Moses, by the way, has stared down this courage crisis. Do you see that God is commanding them here, be strong, verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified of, because of them. Well, how can we not be afraid? How are we, how are we going to be courageous? How are we not going to be terrified? How are we going to be strong? They're asking the question. And God is about to answer the question for them with a promise. One that Moses had encountered earlier in his ministry career, at the front end actually. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 and on, uh, Moses is uh, at the, um, in, in, un, under the shadow of a horrible situation where Israel had made a, uh, a golden calf idol and had declared to the people, this is your God, 
the golden calf idol. This is your God, and, and this, is the, this is the God who led you out of Egypt. What? How could, they even, how could they even think that way? And so Moses inherits this moment, and he's being asked by God to lead this kind of people who in just months had turned from their allegiance to the living God to a golden calf they made with their own hands. Moses is feeling a great sense of insecurity. And so it says here in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me, but you, if, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Note that. What will distinguish? What is the difference? What is the unique identity of God's people versus the people of the world? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. What is the distinction? The presence of God. Moses says, look, if, if you're not going with us, please don't even send us because we're, there's, no, there's no possible way we can do this. There's no possible way I can lead if you aren't going with us. And God lays out a promise at the early stages of Moses' ministry. Moses, I'm going with you. You can count on that. And so when we get to the end of Moses' ministry, 40 years later, he comes to the people and lays out before them a, a really challenging mission not only are you being asked to go into the promised land the land of promise which your fathers and grandfathers were afraid to take but you're going in there with a new leader who you don't know very well not only that God says that Joshua you need to be, notice in verse 7, Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, you need to be strong and courageous. For you must go with this people into the land the Lord swore to your forefathers to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. And the Lord himself will go with you. You know, there's lots of people going to leave us in life. There's lots of people that are going to drop us off. There are a lot of people out there dropping you out of their lives or just canceling you. Maybe you've been ripped from an, a, a relationship recently, painfully. Perhaps some, a friendship has been chased out of your life. A chapter of your life has been forced to close and you didn't expect it. A marriage is torn apart. A loved one unexpectedly or even if expectantly is taken from you. A market downturn and the simple fact is you lose almost everything. The state of insecurity is so great in your life. This moment, it's suddenly everything's shaky. Fear ensnares your emotions every day you wake up, hoping it'll be different, but it isn't different. And the future seems suffocating. There's no breathing space in front of you. Now, there are options when that comes to your life. There are artificial comforts. 
through chemical addictions of some sort. They may get you through a night or two, but nothing changes. Maybe a vow to never risk getting hurt again. Maybe you just stop functioning. Or maybe you pour yourself into distractions, your work or entertainment or whatever. Or, or, you could hear this promise fresh. I will never leave you or forsake you. Everybody else has dropped you off. Everybody else has walked out. You've been walked out. But you have a promise. The living God, the God of the universe, the God in charge of all things, the God of your security, the sovereign God says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I am not leaving. I am not going anywhere. I'm staying right with you. That's what was promised to them. But keep reading. Start at verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting, where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your fathers. In other words, you're going to die. And these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. On that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Does God break his promise? Just a few verses along? He's just said, I will not leave you. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. And we get to verse 17 and he says, I will forsake them. Is God breaking his promise? God points out here this word soon. Soon the people will get into the land. They'll enjoy the marvelous blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey. They'll enjoy all of the blessings of what it means to be people of God. Have the presence of God. Have the protection and security of God. To have the provision of God. They'll experience all of that in the land of promise. But soon, soon they will forget that all of the good things that they're enjoying are from the good hand of God. Soon they'll start to crave other things, want other things. Soon they'll become affluent. So blessed will they be of God that they will have so much that they won't really need me anymore. They won't need to depend upon me anymore. And then they'll turn to other gods and prostitute themselves to those gods. Just as they have done history, historically, in, their, in, the, in the reality of the community. They, did you notice, will forsake me. They will turn from me and go another way. and I will forsake them. There's a helpful description that helps us to understand what this really looks like. In verse 17, he says, I'll forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they'll be destroyed. 
There'll be disasters and difficulties that will come upon them. The only, perhaps the most illustrative way to, to explain the blessing of God is to have, to, to, to have it described this way. To be blessed by God is to have God full face directed at you. That you get to gaze into the full presence of God who is face to face, has turned his face fully to you to bless you. The opposite of blessing is when God turns his face away from you. And the point that's being made here is the people of God have decided to turn their face away from God and chase after other gods, to prostitute themselves to other gods, to turn away from him. And if God remains or stays blessing them, he will in effect be aiding and abetting or being an accomplice to their idolatry, to their wickedness. But rather, God, for their sake, turns from them that they might experience what it is to not have the benefits and blessings of God and to face full on what these other gods can't give to them, which is security and health and blessing. But the, the, the perhaps most insidious thing that happens in the text here is and God describes that, and on that day they will ask, I'm at the end of verse 17, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not, is, is not with us? They, they're literally, they literally decide to blame God, to blame God for the disasters that have come upon them, to, to blame God for the difficulties that have come upon them, to, to blame God for, for, for all that has happened to them when in fact they themselves chose to turn their back on God. Remember first, they will forsake me. And then they have the audacity, as we do, to turn and say, God forsook us and blame him. In fact, as prophet Ezekiel picks up the same idea, which is no doubt um, in line with what God was prophesying here would happen in Ezekiel 12 in verse 8. Here, um, sorry, Ezekiel 8 and verse 12. Um, he said to me, this is the Lord speaking, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They say, notice, they say, here they are at the shrine of their own idols, complaining and blaming God for the difficulties they're encountering claiming that God doesn't see us because God has abandoned us. He's, he's left long ago. We're on our own. We, we, need to, we need to embark upon our own journey. The choices we've made are because God has forsaken us. No, no, the choices you made were to forsake God. Points out here. If you choose alternate securities and substitute providers... You have forsaken God, not him forsaking you. Now, I want to move this with you into the um, context of the New Testament to demonstrate to you how this promise of never leaving, never forsaking ties itself to how we live and how we, our, our behavior. It's important that we see this connection. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, chapter 28, the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28, a text familiar to most of us, very familiar. Some of us have probably memorized it. It's the great commission text that Jesus leaves us. Matthew 28, I want to read verses 18 
to verse 20. And I want you to notice a tie together here of this, of this promise of not, never leaving, never forsaking, and the commands of God that we are to obey. So in verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the same promise. Do you notice? Now, so, so the question I want to answer at this moment is what mission does Jesus promise to be with until the end of the age? Jesus makes the, the same claim that, that God makes in the Old Testament. If you haven't noticed yet, Jesus is making a statement of divinity by this very promise he makes. God is the one who's promised us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Now Jesus is making the same promise to us. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. It's the same promise. But it's based on something. Notice, notice how, how he bases this promise. He, he bases it on a command that's given to us. Go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's a commission of the Lord. No different than the commission that was given to the Old Testament people to take the land of promise. Go and take your land. This is the commission from God. Go into that land. It's a land I'm giving you. I'm giving it to you to live in. This is a commission Jesus is giving to us. Go and make disciples. Go and baptize them. Go and teach them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded to you. Do you see that this promise of God's presence, his permanent continuing presence, is based upon his command to us to do something that's very difficult in life. Become a disciple. Baptize and be baptized. Teach and obey. All of these things. It's, so so the, the question that's answered here is, surely I am with you. Who are the you that he's talking about here, Jesus? He's talking about the discipling you, the baptizing you, the teaching obeying you, that you, those people. He promises to be with them always to the very end of the age. Note the context of the promise. In the same way as the context of the promise of the Old Testament, I will be with you. My command is be strong, courageous, don't be afraid, take the land, go, follow Joshua, and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you in that mission. The same thing is being told to us here by Jesus. Go and make disciples, become a disciple, make disciples, be baptized, baptize them, teach them, obey the commands of Christ, teach people to obey the commands of Christ. Advance the cause of Jesus in this world and live in my land of promise to you that I will not forsake you, I will not leave you in the outworking of that commission. You therefore are now free to be strong and courageous, not be afraid. Isn't it instinctive for us to be a little bit afraid of the commission? To go and make disciples? To go and knock on the door of your neighbor and say, come to Calvary for Christmas? Or to ask somebody in your family who's mocked your Christianity for years, decades, and to ask them to listen one more time to the truth of Jesus' salvation? Is that not a bit daunting? Do we not, to do we not need to hear Jesus' words to us? And I will be with you always? You're not going alone on this mission. You are going loaded with the God of the universe who's on mission with you. It's an act of actual belief and behavior that enjoys the perpetual presence of Almighty God. Don't 
dismantle or dislodge the promises of God from the context in which they're given to us. Or we'll miss the point. And in this promise, we need to be beware of behavior that would negate the benefits and blessings of this promise to us. As we close, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews near the end of the near the end of the book. Hebrews chapter 13. This is a church. This letter is written to a church, the church of Jesus Christ in the early uh, early early first century. A church that is under persecution, heavy persecution. They're losing their possessions. They're losing their jobs for the gospel. Okay? You can find that in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. They're losing their property. They're losing their livelihood. And, and they're, they're in danger of asking the question, where is God? Are, are we on our own? I mean, we came to faith in Christ. Now, are we on our own or... You know, is God going to be enough? I mean, he hasn't given me enough. I, I just have my property confiscated for the gospel. I just lost my job for my faith. I'm obviously, I guess, on my own. And the writer to the Hebrew church says to them, no, 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 listen, in Hebrews 13, 4 and, and to 6, listen, uh, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all is sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Do you see how the writer to this church under persecution and distress attached the promise of a way to live? A, a way to live in the land of promise under great stress? And he's urging them, don't turn to illicit sex. Don't turn to love of money. Rather know that God will not leave you and God will not forsake you. Don't make statements in your life against God's provisional presence as if God isn't with you and now you're on your own. These things will drive you away from God. Like it, it, what happened in the Old Testament, if you start going in this direction, you've turned away from God. No, no, turn full face to God. He's turned full face to you. The promise of God's permanent presence stands for all of those who choose to be satisfied with God. Can I read that to you again? The promise of God's permanent presence stands for all of those who choose to be satisfied with God by refusing to trade him in for what's fickle and fleeting substitutes. And know this, that this promise, living in this promise, in the land of this promise, breaks the bonds of these two very linked sins for all those who believe it. Sex and money. Illicit sex and the love of money will take you away from God. And it will result in him turning his back on you so that you no longer enjoy the benefits of his presence and you will experience difficulties and disasters but if you live in the land of God's promise, the implications of never leaving you or forsaking you and providing for you and caring for you, watching over you, providing you security, strength, courage, free from discouragement, all of these come with the full face of God. You play the field on God and you have decided to forsake him. He won't forsake you. 
And you won't be very successful at holding steadfastly to this promise without help. That's why the writer really of Hebrews really, really pushes hard on the issue of community and living in the land of promise together. That's why the writer of Hebrews writes to the church in Hebrews chapter 10 and says in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as, the, as you see the day approaching. Earlier in the letter in Hebrews chapter three, verse 12, see to it brothers that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard life we live because we live in a land of people who don't love our God and increasingly express their lack of love for God in increasingly painful ways. That's where we live. And if we're not careful, we will think that God has abandoned us, that God has turned his back on us, and we will decide to chase after other things, to fill in the gap that we think exists And it is for God's people to encourage each other to never do that. Don't turn away from God. Whatever you do when things get really, really difficult, don't turn away from God. He has promised not to leave you, not to forsake you. If you turn away from him, he has no choice but to turn his back on you because like a father, like a good father who disciplines his children, our God will discipline you that you might turn back to him. So the promise for us is God won't leave us or forsake us. It is for us to receive it and believe it to actually treasure it by how we live. And, and we are given liberty, freedom, to not be afraid, to not be discouraged. To be, we are given freedom to be courageous, to be unafraid. Because we get to live in the promise of God. We get to experience what it means to actually live experiencing the continuous presence of God who promises you he will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Beloved, I, I, I urge us, I urge us to live here. Believe this. Live it out. Remain steadfast, trusting in his promises to you. Live in the land of his promise. Live with the joy of that, waking up every morning in the security of, regardless of what's going on around us, I have God and he has me. And we're gonna be just fine. Our Father, I thank you and I praise you. I ask you to uh, encourage your people with this word. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit will drill it into our lives that it might become a part of us, O oh Lord. May we not just know this promise, intellectually study this promise, but may we, Father, in fact, live in the land of this promise. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. I just want to do some heart work with people who might be online today and those who might be here who are feeling terrorized by life right now. You're feeling abandoned, alone. Perhaps it's because you don't know the, Je the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is our salvation. I invite you today to consider the claims of Christ.
who came and died for us that we might have salvation through him and never, ever be alone again. If you've never made a decision to respond to the invitation of Christ's salvation, I would encourage you to do that today. Maybe there's somebody here in our gathering this morning who's feeling terrorized by life as well. I'm finding that so many Christians today are living lives just like all the other people in the world, terrified of life, terrified of this moment. We weren't saved to live like this. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is to live in the land of promise with a God who says, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. They live fear-driven lives, selfish, greedy, dishonest, power-addicted lives. That's not how we live. That's not who we are. That, that, that way of living brings just great fear and dismay and destruction. Waking up every day knowing that the living God will not leave you or forsake you gives you strength and courage. You're not discouraged. You're not afraid. That's how we've been, that's the life we've been offered. So it will do no good to know this promise in your head. The promise is intended to be lived out by the experience of your life. So I would encourage all of us to start living the life of security and confidence and fearlessness and not discouraged that we have been promised by the God who says, I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. The Lord is our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. Amen? Father, thank you so much. We have so much to thank you for. And oh God, that you, the God of the universe, would choose to walk with us, to be with us, is staggering to behold. Oh God, may we not squander the benefits of a God who will not leave us or forsake us. May it be so in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, oh God. For I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.